I know it may come as a surprise to some of you who are unmarried here this morning, but marriage is not always blissful. There, there are times where husband and wives do not enjoy marital bliss. Uh, it's possible, believe it or not, that there's a husband and wife here this morning that had an argument over this past week. It, it could be the case. I, I know it's hard to imagine. We, we all sit here with smiles on our face and arms around one another here in church, but it's, it's possible there's even a husband or a wife who was unhappy on the way to church this morning. It's possible that someone wasn't smiling within the last hour. Marriage has days where, where things are far from harmonious. Uh, you, you may wonder, how can this be? Uh, I, there are days I wonder that myself. How can it be that things are unhappy? Over the 33 years that Grace and I have been married, there are days where I could not imagine my love for my wife could ever be strained. And then there were the other days. Days when the strain was real. Now, I want to ensure you, I am sure she had many more of those days over the 33 years than I've had. I am confident that she has the harder challenge living with me but there have been times over the years where the strain of, of living together has gone both ways, where we have struggled. Uh, of course, I know that Grace and I are not unique. There, there are not any brand new marriages here in, in the, the church family. So I'm quite sure that every married couple here could add their own examples of times where they've had situations that strain their marriage. Days, maybe even weeks, where, where the harmony that we perceive in marriage has been strained. One of the things that I tell all couples when I'm going through premarital counseling with them is that they both need to remember that they are, one, marrying a sinner, and two, bringing their own sin into the marriage. I assure them that that, that combination is more than enough to produce conflicts. I can guarantee that theirs will not be the first strain-free marriage since the fall. They will suffer the strain of conflict too. The, the good news for all of us is that, that God is more aware than we are that sin will bring conflicts into our marriage. And, and as we see this morning, God has faithfully left us with his revelation to give us guidance as we deal with conflict when it arises. The, the Song of Solomon has, has been given to guide us as we deal with the subject of intimacy and, and harmony and communion within marriage, but it guides us in all the key areas of marriage, including conflict. Last week was all bliss. We um, saw the wedding night. Our, our text took us in the joy-filled, intimate time of the blissful wedding night as the husband and wife celebrated their union with one another, their covenant relationship that was formed, and they enjoyed the, the oneness of sexual intimacy. This is as God intends. Their, their blissful night arrived after the, the song had brought them to their wedding day, followed by the, the, that, that followed the progression of their love for one another that developed over their courtship. The young couple had carefully preserved their purity. They had avoided intimacy until it could rightly be enjoyed with, within the, the full covenant expression of marriage. And last week, that time arrived. The, the high point of their love came. It's helpful, I'm sure, that most of you by now know that 
the song, as I'm referring to the Song of Solomon, is love poetry that's set to music. That, that's how we can think of it. It's like a choral arrangement that, that's sung to give voice to emotion-laden ideas. There, there are three voices within the song. You have the, the beloved, the, the main singer, a, a solo female voice. She's singing as the part of the young bride. You have the lover, that's the name I've given to the male solo voice, singing the, the, the part of the young groom. And then you have the, the, the third musical voice, that's actually a chorus, female friends of, of the beloved, and they add a, a third perspective from time to time into this choral arrangement. Last week, the lover was the main voice singing. Well, this morning is the beloved, our, our young bride. As, as she has done in many sections of, of the song, she now carries the, the main message. And we'll see that the chorus joins in a couple of times at key moments, but, but we're shifting back to her perspective. Since the, the song is, is a set of poems that's organized in this choral arrangement, we, we don't have a storyline. There, there's nothing to indicate the progression of, of time between the, the wedding night and our text this morning. All we know is that, that today comes later. These are two married couples, or these are two married people rather, a married couple, and, and they are dealing with the, the realities of married life. The honeymoon is over. Let's begin and listen to the song of the beloved as she sings of, this time, conflict from circumstances and selfishness. We're picking up in, in Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved, was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my heart is drenched with dew, my locks from the damp of night. I have taken off my dress. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? My beloved extended his hand through the opening, and my feelings were aroused for him. I rose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and had gone. My heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer me. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my shawl from me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved as to what you will tell him, for I am lovesick. In the verses we just read, we see the reality of married life. There, there is delight in marriage. There is also frustration. We're, we're given just the, the broadest sketch here of, of the situation. We're, we're not really given many details. We just have the broadest sketch of details that, as the beloved is singing here. But there's plenty enough here to understand this is a time of frustration. For, for some reason... Her husband is late getting home from their earlier courtship. We, we heard in the first songs that, that he's a shepherd. So maybe it's possible he was working late taking care of the sheep at night. While having no idea when or even if he would make it home that night, the beloved has gone to bed. She, she feels his absence, but she's already fallen asleep by the time he arrives home and he knocks on her door. 
Some scholars speculate that it was normal for husbands and wives to have separate bedchambers at this time. I have no idea. It's speculation. They don't know for sure either. I suppose that could be true, or it could just simply be that, that he's knocking gently to see if she's still awake. If not, maybe he's decided he'll sleep in the outer room and not disturb her. We really have no idea what it exactly is happening in verse 2 because that's not the point. What is the point is that the lover employs a quartet of endearing names for his wife as he calls out, My sister, my darling, my love, my perfect one. He communicates that he wants to come in and he wants to join her. He, he, he's longing for intimacy with her. The problem is that she's already fallen asleep. And now she's just been woken. Bluntly, she's not in the mood for intimacy. Verse 3, is, as one author put it, is essentially a poetic form of, I have a headache. Her husband does not immediately drop his pursuit. He, he reaches through the openings toward her, and there, there's something in the action that, that touches her, and, and her earlier hesitation vanishes. She, she's now re- receptive to his advance. She, she rises and opens the door for her husband. But alas, he's gone. Having been rebuffed, her, her husband's left. She, she searches the house for him, but he's nowhere to be found. She calls out for him, but he's gone. He's taken her rejection as a personal affront, and, and he's left the house. Verse, verse 7, with, with the sudden introduction here of the watchman, it's a very hard verse to understand. We, we encountered a, a similar verse, you may recall, back in chapter 3, in verse 3. There the watchman made an appearance too. At that time the beloved was yearning for her lover. She was seeking him to find, spend time with him, imagining that they would soon be together. I suggested there that her experience with the watchman was likely happening in her mind. It was potentially a poetic way, maybe a dream she was having, a poetic way to express this inner desire that she had. Well, it's likely that verse 7 here is again happening within her mind. She, she's gotten out of bed. She, she's ready to give her husband what he wanted, to give herself to him, only to discover he's gone. This verse could be a poetic way of communicating that she is hurt by his departure. She, she feels unfairly abused by, by his actions. After all, she had been in bed. She had been sleeping. She had been awoken by his knock. Her initial hesitancy to his advance is understandable. But she also had allowed herself to feel a yearning for him. She had mentally given more than should be expected by moving to receive him. She had gone well beyond the halfway point in her mind, willing to meet him. And he had left. Ouch. That hurt. That wasn't fair. I'll be frank here. I don't know if verse 7 is intended this way or not. I'm pretty convinced that none of the scholars are sure either. Based on the wide variety of suggestions that I've read over the past week, overall, this is the interpretation that makes the most sense to me, but you can do what you want. What was clear is that she has pain now as she yearns for her husband, who's departed. 
And that pain creates a conflict. The conflict has arisen between them and, and it adds even more to her emotional pain. Our, our wife, our singer, she wants her relationship with her husband restored, but, but there's this separation between them that, that now has to be overcome. She calls out to her friends to, to find her husband because she is lovesick. She wants him back. She wants that harmony that we saw last week, the, the bliss of the wedding night. She wants that restored. Re- remember, this is musical poetry. I- I'm saying that because we should not take the last verse there where she calls out to her friends, the daughters of Jerusalem. We should not take this verse as advice that we should involve our friends in our marital problems. Often, involving our friends in marital problems is the most unhelpful thing that we could do. We, we shouldn't take verse 8 as a model. Rather, it, the call to her friends is poetic means that allows a transition in focus. What we should take from this section is an observation of how easy it is for, for conflict to, to enter relationships. Marriage or otherwise, we can expand beyond just marriage relationship. All it takes for conflict to rise is Circumstances that, that don't quite align with our lives, coupled with a small dose of selfishness. Circumstances are, are often such that expectations between two people don't quite line up. They're, they're, they're in somewhat different points. That's what happens here initially. There, there's no indication that there's anything wrong with the husband having to work late. Nor is it wrong for the husband to desire time with his wife. Likewise, there's nothing wrong with the wife going to bed when the husband wasn't home. Who knows? He maybe worked late so that he could get home when he did, but she got tired and went to bed. There's there's nothing wrong with that. We, We can assume she was tired, nor was there anything wrong with the fact that she didn't wake up matching her husband in desire. He came with anticipation. She wakes up. They're at different points. There are simply circumstances in their lives that have caused their desires to differ at a given point in time. The conflict arose because there's also a small measure of selfishness inserted into the circumstances by both parties. The the wife's selfishness is shown in her initial response to her husband. It is a selfish response, even though it's extremely understandable. And it's shown again even more fully on her focus upon her pain when her husband responds in a manner that shows he's hurt. Well, the husband's selfishness, it shows itself clearly in his response to her rejection of his advances. He takes it as a personal affront and and removes herself from her presence. Whether he was wallowing in his own emotions or, or not, we don't know. But we do know he's no longer there, so the situation cannot be quickly resolved. Folks, what we need to realize is that our circumstances alone do not cause the conflicts that that we experience in our lives, the conflicts that blow up. Rather, circumstances provide the opportunities for conflicts. Circumstances give room for us to express our desires and our expectations to others. Circumstances give us the the opportunity to do that, and they give opportunity for others to express their desires to us. Conflicts arise when 
desires and expectations don't match. Now, I believe it's possible for there to be a mismatch here, a a conflict of sorts, if you will, without problems developing. It's inevitable that that desires will not always match in any relationship. We, We all see the world differently. We all have various experiences. We all have different gifts and skills. We have different energy levels. We have innumerable differences, and all that leads us to different expectations and desires. That inevitably leads to a misalignment, a a conflict at one level where our differences encounter each other in real-life situations. We can choose to to resolve our conflicts here by by dealing with these differences together, by by looking for the best solution to the the situation that's created by the circumstances and our differences. That's not really a problem. That's productive. Problems, by contrast, come when we add in this dose of selfishness to our desires. When we, when we add in selfishness is when we begin to feel hurt. That, that's when our focus turns to how we have been wronged because the other person didn't line up to our desire. That is when we get angry. That's when we get offended. It takes circumstances plus selfishness to turn natural conflicts into problematic conflicts. The beloved has experienced that. She sung about their conflict, the conflict that comes from circumstances and selfishness. And in response, her friends, the the chorus, sing a a very brief verse that that provides a a redirection of focus. Verse 9. What kind of beloved is your beloved, O most beautiful among women? What kind of beloved is your beloved that you thus adjure us? The friends here, instead of allowing the the wife to remain focused on the circumstances that fueled her selfishness, the the friends redirect her focus to her husband. Four times in this verse, they they use the word beloved. Now, I've been calling the wife beloved as as we go through the song in this series. I'm referring to her as the beloved. But beloved is the favorite term that she uses for her husband as well. When she speaks and refers to him. And the friends ask her, they use the term for him that she uses. Basically, they're asking her, what kind of guy is he, your husband? Why do you want to find him? What makes him so special that you would call him beloved? This is an important step in resolving conflicts. Whether with a a husband or wife or with any other person, this is an important step. We need to look beyond the circumstance, go beyond the immediate circumstance, and think about the person that's on the other side. There is always another person involved. There is someone with whom we have a history, someone we have a relationship with. In a marriage, there is always someone with whom we have coveted and committed ourselves to love. We need to remember this person by by letting our focus be redirected to him or her. Let's look at the person rather than the problem. That the brief line by the friends that that serves that purpose. It redirects the the bride's focus. And the bride once more picks up the song as, as she remembers now beyond the circumstances. Verse 10. What kind of beloved is your beloved? Well, she 
says, My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among ten thousand. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates, and black as raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, and reposed in their setting. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His, admin, ad, his abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillar of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice of the cedars. His mouth is full of sweetness, and he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I really hope that invoking the daughters of Jerusalem is a poetic device because your friends have to listen to this kind of sappy rendition. I feel for them. I hope this is going on in her mind as she's dwelling on who he really is, thinking about her. The bride is thinking about her husband. She's been asked what makes him so special in her her mind. The list is long. Obviously, she uses a lot of poetic language. She's echoing a lot of the words and and images that he used last chapter when he, he was blissfully enjoying his intimate time with her as he was praising her beauty and, and, and dis, describing the value that she was to him on, on their wedding night. Now in her mind's eye, she sees him. He is exceptional, strong and handsome, stately and tender. To her, he is the greatest source of sweetness. Above all, not only is her husband her beloved, he is also her friend. The word that she uses there in verse 16 for friend, that, that's the masculine counterpart to the, the favorite expression that, that the lover has used for his bride. Normally when he speaks this, it's been translated as my darling. Now she uses the masculine form of that same word. She uses this term of endearment to, to state that he is her closest companion. What makes him so special? This is the answer to the question. He is her beloved, and he is her friend, her closest companion. One of the exercises that I frequently will assign to couples when they ask for help with with marriage issues is is I give them a a task of writing out a list, much like this one. Uh, I confess I've never asked for it to be in poetic form. I could never do that, and I expect most couples in my office could not either, although some I'm sure could. But I ask for a similar list. That's what I'm looking for. I ask each spouse to take a piece of paper and, and list what was there about their spouse that they loved at the moment they said, I do. Often I require a large number of items. I'll give a specific, maybe 30 items or something. What are 30 things that you loved about your spouse when you stood on that platform or before the pastor and said, I do? Sometimes I will also have them note, once they come up with that list, which of these things are still true? My my goal in this exercise is to help the couple move past their current circumstances, to move past the issues that brought them to my office, and once more, think about the person, the, the person, their spouse. In any conflict situation, we need to remember there is a person on the other side of the circumstances. 
is a person that, that we cared enough for at one point that we've developed a relationship with that person in the past. We may have lost sight of why we developed that relationship because of the circumstances, but the person is still there. The question from the friends led our bride to, to remembering beyond the circumstances. She looked beyond the circumstances and saw the person again. That is a good first step, but it's not far enough. In the first verse of chapter 6, that the friends sing out a second time, uh, with a second redirection of focus. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? Another quick song, another quick verse here to, to the choral arrangement with the, the friends singing, and, and they express that not only are they willing to carry the bride's message, they're willing to help look for her husband. They'll, they'll join her in the search. They, they want to help her find her husband again and, and reconcile her, help her see her reconciled with one that she's just remembered. Hey, again, I don't think we need to take this verse to indicate this is a model to follow when we have a problem in our marriage. I believe it's a poetic device that, that allows us to see another shift in focus. The first shift went from circumstances to the person, but now we're going to shift again. I will admit, though, that there are times that you might feel you need to seek support from someone who's outside your marriage or outside the relationship, if we're going beyond that, to, to help have someone help you with whatever conflict has ruptured your relationship. You may recognize that your emotions are, are such that, that you need some outside eyes looking in because you can't think straight. You realize that you're not looking at the situation from the, the proper perspective, so you want the input of someone else. There, there are times where that might be the case. And when that is the case, let me say especially if it, the case is dealing with, with problems in your marriage, make sure you seek advice from someone who will push you toward the other person in marriage especially, toward your spouse. Someone who will encourage you in that covenant relationship that you have, that, that will move you toward reconciliation rather than, than someone who will simply rationalize your emotional confusion with you. Too often seeks, people seek support from, from those who will accept and validate their emotions. We live in a society that's all about how you feel. They, they, so you look for someone who validates your emotional turmoil rather than pushing you to go past your emotions where you need to go. So let me encourage you, don't make that mistake. If you involve someone else, involve someone who will push you past your emotions. The friends have pushed the, the wife here to reconcile with her husband. And we can see that in, in their song of verse 1 pretty easily, but, but what isn't as apparent is how they're redirecting her focus. How they're redirecting her focus by pushing her to find him and resolve the conflict. They're, they're pushing her to focus on, on something that is greater than just the person. They're pushing her to focus on what is true. The redirection of, of focus, it comes out more clearly as we read the, the last two verses this morning. It isn't enough to simply remember the person behind our conflict we, we also need to remember the foundational truth at the core of everything. Look at the last two verses. My beloved has gone down to his garden 
to the beds of balsam, to pastures flock in the gardens and gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He who pastures his flock among the lilies. Verse 2 and verse 3, for that matter, sounds a lot like the language from the wedding night that we looked at last week. Our wife is remembering that she has enjoyed full intimacy with her husband. He has proven his love to her. She has felt his love. She knows his love. She has given herself fully to him. And as she states in verse 3, she is his and he is hers. That is what is true. That is the foundation of their relationship. The emotions that have arisen from this current squabble, they've not shaken the foundation at all. Their foundation is part of their shared history. Their foundation is far more stable than the conflict of the moment. Their shared history includes the the closest of intimacy. Their shared history is wrapped up in, in a covenant commitment. Their shared history is built on a foundation that now allows for reconciliation of the current conflict. Husbands and wives, we need to remember this covenant aspect in our marriage. We, we have committed to our spouses in a covenantal relationship. Circumstances can't change our covenant. Conflicts cannot change our covenant. Our covenant is foundational. The intimacy of marriage, the, the, the oneness, it, it functions as a seal of, of our one covenant with one another. Conflicts will come. There, there will be days when we're angry with one another. There are will be days when we hurt one another. Yet the foundation of our marriage is not shaken by those things because the foundation is a covenant that, that's formed in our shared history. We both stood at the same place and covenanted to one another. I recognize this morning that I'm presenting the ideal pattern for conflict resolution. This is the ideal I also know that in this sin-broken world that not every conflict between spouses will find reconciliation. Frankly, our, our couple in the song have, have not reconciled at this point. If you think about it, we've just followed the wife through a change of thinking. We haven't had a reconciliation occur yet. Our, our reconciliation may or may not come yet. We don't know. What we've seen is, is God's pattern for how one person, in this case the wife, has moved from hurt and anger to a desire for reconciliation. We, we have to remember, God gives us to us because we are, only remember, or we are only responsible before God for our actions and our reactions. In other words, we're responsible for what we do. Our individual responsibility is that we would follow this pattern so that we find ourselves seeking reconciliation rather than retaliation. We live in a world that, that, that glamorizes retaliation. But God calls us to seek reconciliation. And we do that by remembering the person and then remembering the foundational truth as I've already indicated a few times this morning, we really can expand this principle beyond marriage to every conflict we encounter with, with another person. 
This pattern shows us how to forgive those who wrong us, how to get past the, the hurt of, of the moment, the pain and the anger, and, and to seek reconciliation in our relationships. We need to remember as foundational truth our New Testament command. We're to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. Ephesians 4.32. The, the degree to which we wrong God is infinite. It's beyond measure. Yet God forgave us. He forgave us at the cost of his own son's life. Ultimately, that is the foundational truth that, that we must always hold on to because it pushes us back to where we will go through this pattern, where we will go from hurts and angers and we will seek reconciliation because no matter what someone else has done to us, it is so far less than what we have done to God. We will never be asked to forgive and reconcile someone to the level that God has forgiven and reconciled with us through Christ. And now we are called by God to show his love to others by forgiving and reconciling with them. Next week, we will follow through the actual reconciliation. As I said, today we haven't seen reconciliation. We've seen how the one person goes to, from the point of being angry and hurt to being desirous of reconciliation. Next week, we'll follow it on through. But today, the lesson that, that we've heard sung is really this. Resolving conflicts requires that we look beyond the circumstances to foundational truth. Resolving conflicts requires that we look beyond the circumstances to foundational truths. All of us experience conflicts. We experience conflicts in our marriages. We experience conflicts in, in the other relationships that, that we have in the sin-broken world. We experience conflicts. They, they arise because of our differences, and, and pain in those conflicts arise then when we inject just a small dose of selfishness to go along with the differences. What we need to recall is that our conflicts never change the foundational truths. We are in relationships with other people, and we are to show the love of God in how we interact with those people. We're to forgive and reconcile with others, because that is what God has done for us. Now, I know that sin has destroyed many relationships that we've had in our lives, because we have not reconciled. Sometimes it's because we have not followed this process of even desiring to reconcile. We've held on to our pain and our hurt, and we've allowed our selfishness to grow to where we're at, at fault. And if that's in our history, what we can do at this point is confess it to God, ask his forgiveness, and learn from it. Learn God's desire. Other times, we have relationships that are severed because no matter how much we desired reconciliation, the, it takes two to reconcile, and the other person never came to that point. Again, we can just thank God that he has given us a spirit of reconciliation and move on. What God gives us is what we need to know for the present and the future. And what is clearly given us today is that we are to work towards resolving conflicts. And that requires that we are the ones who look beyond our circumstances to foundational truths. And that will move us to where we desire reconciliation.
As we leave today, let me ask, will you strive for this pattern this week? Will you strive to forgive those who have wronged you? Most likely as we go about this week, we'll run into people that wrong us anew, but we may run into people who have wronged us long ago and there's been this issue between us. Will you strive to reconcile with those with whom you are in conflict? Will you do it because you want to show the love of God? Resolving conflicts require that that we look beyond the circumstances to foundational truth. Let's pray.